Our reading today is Romans 12, 1 through 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. So the title of this uh, three-part series uh, before Advent um, is The Gift of Surrender. And the reason we chose the gift of surrender is because I actually believe that in a biblical context, the notion of surrender is a gift, okay? Um, As a matter of fact, um, sometimes whenever we think of the idea of surrender, we think of other things, right? We think of, excuse me, we think of how we're going to uh, make a promise if something comes along and goes well, like we have our backs to the wall and we cry out to God and we say, God, if you'll just come through for me, I'll make a promise for you, I'll surrender this, I'll surrender that, it'll be really important, but I'll surrender it. And so is, if I got the right order for a slide, well, this is the, uh, the series in part, uh, part three, surrender to God, surrender to authority, surrender to one another, but the next slide shows you something else. Uh, yeah, I, can, you, can you read that? It says, FYI, if you made any promises in the bottom of the ninth, service starts at 9.30 and 11 <laughs> at Evangelical Community Church, right? The point is, <laughs> it's just ridiculous, but the point is, some of us make promises to God whenever we want something that we don't think we might be able to get on our own. And some people probably made some promises at the bottom of the ninth that they would come to church if God would let the Cubs win. So um, if that was any of you, I'm glad you're here. Um, but surrender goes deeper than that, right? It, it's a promise to be a certain thing. It's a promise to give up something. As a matter of fact, the notion of surrender is almost uniformly viewed negatively. I mean, think about it. When you think about surrender in battle, what do you think about? You think about someone who has been defeated and you give up. When you think about surrender in terms of fighting, uh, my, my son happens to be into mixed martial arts, and he's been in a number of fights, and there's a thing called a submission, right? So the point is, at the end of it all, you either get knocked out or you submit. That is, you give up, you surrender to the opponent. If you're wrestling, it's not quite exactly like that, but surrender in wrestling is, for the most part, you're pinned. You can win by points. But a, a, a real dramatic match is when a person is actually pinned and they, they surrender, they give up. So that's the negative connotation. It's the way we think of it most frequently. In this passage, Paul uses the word sacrifice, and I'm using surrender interchangeably. And he uses it because it is a 
it is a concept that they understand well from their background. Whether they're Jewish believers in Christ or Jewish uh, believers who don't believe in Christ but follow the Torah, or whether they are what you might call Gentile pagan religions of some sort or another that Paul might call them, all of them understand this notion of sacrifice or surrender. Um, because most of them would have had as a part of their religious understanding sacrifice of animals to the gods or to a particular god. That was just all over the place. We don't think of that now, right? You don't think of a religion down the street sacrificing animals every Sunday morning or Saturday because people don't do that the same way. But the notion that Paul was working with was the notion of sacrifice or surrender that was deeply embedded in the religious culture. And then he says to them, I want you to see this differently for a moment. As a matter of fact, I want to introduce a revolutionary idea to you. I want you to sacrifice yourself as a living sacrifice. I don't want you to give an animal, which is rightfully yours, and sacrifice that animal, and at some level be making a sacrifice yourself. What I want you to do is to give me a living sacrifice, namely you. I want you to take yourself and become a living sacrifice for God. That's an entirely different use of the word sacrifice, or as I'm calling it, surrender. So I want to break down the idea of surrender or sacrifice in this passage with those four points. The reason for the sacrifice. What does Paul say the reason for the sacrifice is, this living sacrifice? The reason for the sacrifice is you do it in view of God's mercies. The reason you sacrifice as a living sacrifice to God is because God through Jesus Christ has been merciful and gracious to you. He saved you from sin. He saved you from death. He's rescued you from yourself and your own destructive habits and given you a new life. So in light of that great mercy, give yourself to God. Become a living sacrifice of praise. You know, many religions back then and even today begin in another place. They begin with the notion that you and I somehow have to please the gods. We have to do something as an offering that pleases the gods in order to merit their favor. You know what's profound about the Christian religion? It doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, the Christian religion begins with grace. And the grace does not come from us, it comes from God. The Christian religion doesn't begin with us initiating a relationship with God, it begins with God initiating a relationship with us. It begins with grace, and following the grace of God in Jesus Christ, it moves towards gratitude. 
So what you might consider to be a Christian life or an ethical life is really a life of gratitude for all God has done for you. You're not earning anything, says Paul. You're giving your life to God because of his great gift to you. So the reason for the sacrifice is in view of God's great mercy and grace to us. The second thing is the the nature of the sacrifice. Paul says categorically the nature of the sacrifice is at least two things. One, it's complete. The nature of the sacrifice, it's complete. He wants you to give everything that's a part of you. In other words, when Paul says, I want you to give yourself as a living sacrifice or your body as a living sacrifice, he's not just talking about flesh and blood, right? He's talking about our whole being. So Paul is saying, I want you to give your entire self, your whole being as a living sacrifice to me. I love the way one paraphrase puts it. Let me read it to you. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. In other words, says Paul, give God everything, your whole being, completely. That's what I'm calling for in view of God's mercy. So the nature of the sacrifice is complete, right? But also the nature of the sacrifice is reasonable or rational or thinking or deliberate. Uh, Some translations say that this is your spiritual act of worship. I much prefer the translations that say this is your reasonable or rational act of worship. Because I think that's a better translation of what Paul is saying here. Paul is essentially saying, you could do this emotionally. You could get in an ecstatic experience like the mystery religions and say, I give it up to you, God. I'm not talking about that, says Paul. I'm talking about your reasonable, well-thought-out act of worship. You realize that you have nothing except the blessing and mercy and grace of God. And in light of that, you make a very reasoned judgment that because of that mercy and grace, nothing, nothing is available to you outside of the grace of God. And because of that, the only proper response is to give yourself completely to God. I want it to be well-reasoned, rational. I want you as an image-bearer of God Not a mountain, not a rock, not the water, not the earth. I want you, as a rational creature, to give a well-reasoned sacrifice to God. So it's complete and it's reasonable. It's thought through. First, we have uh, the reason for the sacrifice. Then next, the nature of the sacrifice. And third, the process of the sacrifice. And it's a process, the sacrifice. You know, some of you uh, might have a dramatic conversion experience. Some of you may not. I often contrast the difference between my wife and me, and there are many, (laughs) but this is one that's especially true. 
My wife doesn't remember a dramatic sacrifice of turning her life over to God. I mean, she's by far a better Christian than I am, more fully devoted. That's undeniable. You can ask the family if you want to know the real story. But what my wife does not remember was this dramatic moment where she said, Jesus, you're my Lord. I give up my life to you. Because since childhood, every day she can remember of her life, she's turned to Jesus and understood herself to be completely in the mercy and grace of God and understood herself to be a sinner. And she just continued to do that all her life. She said on one occasion, I did that so many times I can't even remember how many times it was. My story's different. I had a dramatic conversion experience. And I can still remember as if it were yesterday. It was July 17th, 1977. At an old time revival service. Where I came face to face with the reality of God's love and grace and my sin. And I surrendered. And my life changed forever. I might as well on that day have crawled up on something like this and just laid down like an animal and said, God, I give up. Because that's what I did. But here's the point, my friends. I could have crawled off the altar. And here's the honest reality. I have frequently gotten off the altar. I have not always been a complete whole sacrifice to God because I'm self-willed and I don't want to go God's direction. And so the reality of this sacrifice, the process of this sacrifice is that it is an ongoing transformation. It doesn't just happen and it's over. As dramatic as the happening was for me, it wasn't over at that point. It was only beginning So the process of my sacrifice, what does it look like? It looks like this, Paul says. I want you to give yourself entirely to me, and this is what it looks like. I don't want you to be conformed any longer to the standards of this world. That's what it looks like. One translation or paraphrase put it this way. I love this phrase. He just summarized it with such concise language. He said, what Paul's saying is this. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Everything around you wants to squeeze you into a different mold than the mold that Christ wants for you as his follower. Don't let the world do that. Another paraphrase puts it this way. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, Fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognizing what he wants from you and quickly responding to it. Do you see the process? Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. My friend, sacrifice 
is not just a moment. It's a process. And the process will continue to the end of your life. It's for that reason that I would suggest that we, who are Christ followers, need to actually be suspicious, really suspicious, of worldly wisdom. There's a lot of talking heads out there. There's a lot of people who have advice. Sometimes they even call it spiritual advice. There's a secular culture that knows nothing about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that speaks constantly into our life. And it's very easy for us to just accept it. And I'm suggesting that Paul would be aghast. And that's what he's trying to say. Don't do this. You've got to push against your culture. You've got to rethink life in light of God's word. I love the way uh, theologian Karl Barth said it one time. He said, Christian ethics is the great disturbance. You know why he said that? Christian ethics is the great disturbance? Because Christian ethics constantly challenges the status quo. It's constantly overturning the rules that we think are moral rules, or we think are the proper way to live. Um, th this is one of those places where I could just go off and we could do three more sermons, but I won't. However, I will mention a few things in terms of rethinking our world. And here's what I want to say. Most of the time, the Christian way of thinking is not just interestingly slightly different. It is frequently, absolutely in contrast or contradiction to the secular voices that you hear. It is. Let's just run through a few. Money. Or as some people say, you can't be great without being rich. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says greatness is the widow's offering at the temple. The tiny little coin that represented the heart. Or how about power? The notion of our power in a popular way is that power makes us great and we use it for self. But what did Jesus say? If you're going to be a leader in the kingdom of God, you first have to be a servant. The Gentiles, he said, just speaking about the larger culture, they lord over people with their power. You're supposed to serve people with your power. The more powerful you are, the greater servant you ought to be. Or how about ambition? The notion of ambition is to look out for yourself, to make your way in the world, 
even at the cost of others. But Jesus says, no, you're supposed to love others like you love yourself. (laughs) You know how profound that is? You know how radical that is? You and I are full of self-love. It's how we get up and do things in the morning. And Jesus says, you're supposed to love other people the way you love yourself. Use that to understand the concept concept of ambition. Or how about the notion of love? My friends, the notion of love in our world is apparently inextricably linked and defined by passion It's defined by what I want. And there's nothing in the scripture that allows us to view love that way. Not if we're Christians. See, what we know about God's word tells us this. Love is not an end unto itself. You can't place a label of love on something and say, that makes it okay. Why? It's really profound and simple all at once. Because we love the wrong things. My heart is inclined towards sin. And there's certain things that are categorically sin. And I might love them more than I love life itself, but it's not okay. Because it's a disordered love. I've got everything turned upside down according to God's transforming of my mind. If we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, we literally say to ourselves, there's certain things I love at the depths of my being I'm passionate about that I cannot pursue. You've got to say that, folks, in order to follow Christ. You must say that. Or how about marriage? This was the hardest thing I said last service, okay? And I think you'll understand why. Because before I say what I'm going to say, I want you to hear my heart. Please, I'm begging you, hear my heart. I know that some marriages don't last. I understand that frequently they fall into divorce. And I fully understand, after all these years in ministry and counseling people, that there are some marriages that are beyond hope. I get that, okay? And I realize that sometimes a divorce comes and there's no other way. I won't go into the details. That's not the point. My point is this. Our culture has decided for us that the 
Commitment to marriage is almost entirely contingent upon your happiness. And your fulfillment within the marriage. And my friends, that is not true according to the scripture. You commit to someone for life. And in that commitment, you are shaped and sanctified by God. And you don't walk away from it just because you're unhappy or unfulfilled. I hope you heard me all the way through. But commitment to a marriage vow is something of a high order in God's economy. And it's different than commitment in the world. That's why everybody on church staff who does weddings will not do a wedding without premarital counseling. And I've married many of you, and many of you could tell the story that when you come in, especially as young people, you can't imagine a different day. You can't imagine when you wouldn't be satisfied or fulfilled or happy in that relationship. And I do my best to help you see that day. (laughs) Because unless you're really weird, it's coming. (laughs) If you're like me and my wife, it has come over and over and over again. I'll never forget, my wife's not here, she's in the first service, so I'll tell this story, just don't tell her. (laughs) I'll never forget one occasion where I thought to myself, she's gone. I have a really appropriate word to describe my behavior, but I won't use it. But it wasn't good. And I was at fault. And she couldn't take it anymore. And we had little kids in the house. And she stopped engaging with me and just walked out the front door and slammed it. And I heard the car start and I thought, I wonder if she'll come back. You know what that was? The grace of God. That moment was the grace of of God because we worked through it and we committed ourselves to one another be transformed says Paul by the renewing of your mind you view reality differently as a Christian I do I have time Okay, I'll just say this one real quick. Family is another thing that's different as it relates to the world and as it relates to Christian parenting. The world basically says you raise your kids 
You give them every advantage you can give them. You do your best to position them for success. You cheer them on and you send them off and you love them completely. All sounds great, except there's one problem. There's nothing in there, in that description, about the responsibility of a parent being to train children in righteousness. And training children in righteousness, hear me carefully if you're a parent, especially a young parent, it's tough work. And you want to give up on it over and over and over again. Especially when they become 15. I mean, you might be the anomaly. You might have had 15-year-olds that were great. I never had any like that. And when they were 15, they were defiant, and they didn't want to do what I wanted them to do. And they didn't want to go to church, and they didn't want... The list could go on. And my friends, it was not optional in our home. There were things that they had to conform to. The way I have to conform to the will of God. And as a parent, my conformity to the will of God and my demand, can I use the word? It's okay to use it. My demand that they conform to my will was part of my responsibility. That's all I've got to say about that. Except to say we're not all perfect, right? I mean, my family certainly not, if you know my kids. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of the story I heard one time about a little boy. Um, his little sister was going to be baptized, and uh, they went through the baptismal thing, and then they got to the church, and the, and the minister was doing the baptism, and he started praying for this little sister of this, this older brother. And <clears throat> the little sister was being prayed over, and he was saying, Lord, we just pray that this child will be raised in a wonderful Christian family, and on and on, you know, like we pray. And so they got in the car and started back home, and the little boy who's the older brother is sitting in the back seat, and he's just sobbing. And the parents turned around and said, what's the matter? What he said, well, the pastor kept saying, I want this child to be raised in a Christian home, and I just want to be raised by you guys. I was like, <laughs> oh, you'll get that in a minute. <laughs> the point is, we're not okay, right? None of us are. We're lousy parents, but we do our best as husband and children and as parents to be transformed by the grace of God. We allow God's will to be imposed upon our will so that we can understand grace and peace. So what's the result of the sacrifice? The result of the sacrifice is, number one, you'll be able to know the will of God. In other words, you will understand the will of God. Namely, you will understand truth that you could not understand about life, reality, and yourself. You will know it. You will see it. It will affect you if you sacrifice yourself. And the knowledge of God will result in freedom if you surrender and sacrifice yourself. And the knowledge of God will create meaning for you in this life if you sacrifice and surrender yourself. And you know one other thing? If you really surrender yourself to God unconditionally, you will no longer be ruled, mastered by the tyranny 
of self. You'll be free to serve God and to serve others and to find fulfillment in that. That's why Paul says in this passage, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Take the grace of God and the gifts you've been given to glorify God and serve others. Can I put it more crassly? Stop thinking about yourself so much, says Paul. Serve others. I, um, I read a couple of verses from a hymn. Old school, man. Old school language that I want to read to you in the second service as well. We actually sang it in the first. But I think this puts it pretty well. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquered be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms. (laughs) That's great. Imprison me within thine arms, thy loving arms. And strong shall be my hand. My heart is weak and poor until it master finds. It has no spring of action. This is an old watch image. It has no spring of action, sure. It varies with the wind. It cannot freely move till thou hast wrought or pulled its chain. Enslave it with thy matchless love, and deathless it shall remain. Talk about freedom. The last verse, my will is not my own. My will, listen, my will, my will is not my own till thou hast made it thine. If it would reach a monarch's throne, it must its crown resign. It only stands unbent, that is my will, amid the clashing strife, when on thy bosom it has leaned and found in thee It's life. Let's pray. God, we are uh, weak and helpless to be the kind of people that even we want to be. We're certainly weak and helpless to be the kind of people that you want us to be. And because of that, we are so delighted by the grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. That you who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you for that truth and we thank you for the grace that we should live out of. So Lord, in view of your great mercy to us this week, we pray that you will help us surrender ourselves to you. That in the process of this life of sanctification, you will sanctify us, purify us, conform our will to your will so that we can know true freedom 
and find our life in you. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.